are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Weird Science Marvel Comics Podcast. I am Jim. I'm your host, and we'll be going through a bunch of books this week. Tonight in this here episode, we have some things that we're still catching up from from last week, like a Deadpool and a Secret Invasion. But we have a bunch of books that came out this week as well as we start getting things back into line, back into a schedule to keep up with the X-Men show, and the Star Wars show, which always keep on schedule, right? That's how things go. Before we get into all of this, I'd first like to ask everybody to go to the show notes of this here podcast and look at the links that you can go to to all of the podcasts in the Weird Science family of podcasts. It's a family, not a network, as they say down at the rec center, but also go over to our Twitter at WS Marvel Comics, then go to our website, WeirdScienceMarvelComics.com, and then finally go to our Patreon to help us out for everything we do here and get a ton more in return. And that is at patreon.com slash weird science. One of the things that we talk about a lot when we talk about the Patreon are the badass spotlight episodes that we have every Thursday. Now we haven't had one in a little bit. For the Marvel side of things, but I put the poll up for this week, this coming up week, and two of the books from this week will be picked to be on that spotlight. And just as an aside before we jump into these books, welcome to the Get Fresh crew, everyone. Er, er, all you are weirdos in the Get Fresh crew now, just by listening. It's that easy. You pass the test without even knowing there was a test. But we're going to go off, and I'm going to start off with two books from last week. Two number ones. I love number ones. And we're going to have Deadpool and then Secret Invasion. Deadpool number one is written by Alyssa Long. Pencils and inks by Martin Cocolo. Colors by Neeraj Menon. Letters by Joe Sabino. And I saw a lot of people talking about this book and Alyssa Wong being on Deadpool. She ended up having an interview where she talked about going to the X offices and pitching a book, not this one, but pitching a book, and they ended up saying, no, that's not going to work out, but hey, you want to do Deadpool? All right. It's like one of those, you get a Deadpool, you get a Deadpool. You just kind of walk in the offices and end up having a pitch turned down, and then you get Deadpool, which should be a big book, right? I think so. And I saw people talking about the idea that they were really worried that this book was going to stink. Stink on ice, they thought. It doesn't stink. It's okay. It's not horrible. And that's kind of backdoor shade at one point, but it's kind of a sign of the times where if a book isn't horrible, you will get people commending it. I do think it's one of those things of hype and anticipation and things like that and expectations where people who thought, oh, this book's going to stink. Well, if it in their mind is going to be a two, and then it ends up being a six, boy, you actually have good feelings about that. Now, if you go into it thinking it's going to be a 10 and it's a six, then you're upset. It's like the idea of an arranged marriage versus Western marriage. I do talk about that a lot on the podcast. I won't get into it, but you could look it up. But all in all, with all of this stuff going down, it's not that bad. It's just not that funny. I wanted it to be a little more funny 
But it ends up okay. There's some continuity, little snafus and things that feel weird. But we'll get into that because the book ends up starting with old Deadpool. He is tied up at the moment, right? He's got vines all around him. And even these weird slug monstrosity bird things. I don't even know what that thing is. It looks horrendous, but they have him trapped. He doesn't quite remember how all this happened, but he finds out very quickly who did it because Harriet Bromes, a.k.a. the Harrower, she shows up and goes, hey, what up? I'm Harriet Bromes, the Harrower, and I ended up capturing you. And if you don't know, old Harriet, she is a character that was created by Steve Orlando and Carmen Canero back in the Avengers Curse of the Man thing number one. Way, way back in 2021. Oh, my. March of 2021. And I remember reading the issue. I remember that she was trying to do sus things to man thing. It didn't quite work out. But she was more of an evil offshoot of what was at that point a team that I kind of was digging. And that is the Jonathan Hickman Golden Girls team of horticulture. You end up having Harriet here. She is the great niece of Augustus Brooms of that team. So there's that tie-in. There's the tie-in of the X-Books and all of that. I don't read many of the X-Books anymore. Uh, I pass that on off to Jason and Ruben, but I did like horticulture enough. I kind of got a kick out of the Golden Girls fighting the X-Men. But Harriet's a little insane. She likes to have people worship her. She mentions in this later that she uses like the spellosity where she could do things with the fission and the fusion. It's more of just like a, hey, that's how it's going to work. It's not really explained very well, but you can get the idea that she's kind of Marvel's version of Poison Ivy and it works out fine. Well, she ends up capturing Deadpool. Well, why is that? Why is she there? With Deadpool, well, it's the healing factor. The healing factor is a great deal, and I wish I had a healing factor because I fell down the stairs yesterday, and I ended up really hurting myself, and I'm really aching right now. And don't even ask me why I keep falling down the stairs. I really can't answer that. No, I was not drunk. I don't drink. I'm not, you know, Brandon or Luke Hollywood here. Seriously. But I end up having problems with being a klutz, basically. But I'd like to have the healing factor, but the healing factor ends up turning into a a sus way that people end up taking advantage of you. This is something that ended up happening in the Old Man Logan book. And I remember me and Brandon being disgusted where you have the cannibals and they're just stripping the flesh off of Wolverine because it'll grow back. It is an all night, all day replenishing buffet for cannibals. So, hey, you know, there's what you get. There's a good and bad side of just about everything. And I will tell you also, when me and Brandon ended up talking about that, that whole thing stuck with me so much that I ended up way past then going and getting a gyro. And I ended up seeing that like wheel of meat and, you know, the gyro or the gyro. It's my one buddy always, it's a gyro. And I used to get mad at them, but end up with that wheel of meat that, they were stripping it. It almost made me just nauseous thinking about Wolverine. Now, I did eat the gyro anyway because they're delicious, but he still thought of that. It still weirded me out. But the healing factor is why Harrower ends up having Deadpool. Deadpool kind of was in the right place at the wrong time. You can kind of go with. But as you end up having Harrower discussing this, 
She just says, well, I got the symbiote deal. Deadpool freaks out. No, no, not a symbiote. And she does put it in him. She inserts it in this tummy, right? And this was one of the things when Alyssa Wong was hired to do the book and it was announced. She ended up saying that this book would be real big on the body horror, but it would also be really big on the idea that Deadpool's going to get pregnant and give birth. And a lot of people I saw rolled their eyes at that, but this seems to be the twist of it, that it's carnage symbiote in them. So rest assured, that's kind of cool. And again, it's cool. I'm not laughing yet. I want some laughs, but we then also find out how Howard got this piece of the carnage symbiote. She ended up having problems with Man-Thing in that one shot and it left the swamp, seemed to have head to Manhattan and was just, you know, strutting down the street. Oh, no, I'm right in the middle of absolute carnage. Who would have thunk it? And then, oh, what's that? Oh, it's a little bit of the carnage symbiote. Let me grab that and skedaddle out. It's one of those things. Damage control was not there. The Life Foundation, nobody got there quick enough to clean up. She grabbed the goo and ran. We just saw her just like sprinting out. That's how she ended up getting it. Okay. Now, with the carnage stuff, it's not that this goes against the Ram V book, but just kind of feels weird. When you kind of have that going on at the same time and Carnage and Cletus being separated, whatever. But this is kind of its side deal, little little side piece of the Carnage symbiote. But she has it. It's inserted into Deadpool. And you know, she talks about how she wants to have people worship her and do all this stuff and pretty much destroy humanity is what she's all about. I mean, it's it's Poison Ivy again, but. She also has the fission and the fusion and the spellosity. She could do it all. She's the red, the green, and everything in between, baby. And then she's doing this. Deadpool's trying to get out, and then he's like, oh, wait a minute. I remember why I'm here. I was supposed to go and take down Doc Ock. And we find out what that's all about because Deadpool decides that he wants to be involved in the sexiest of sexy assassins, the Altier, a group of fashionable Assassins. That kind of makes me laugh. And I kind of like the idea, number one, that you end up having Deadpool wanting to be a sexy assassin. Now, I'll also point out, and I didn't even think of this in the many times that I even tried to record this, you have to, and if you don't, Alyssa Wong, I'm gonna I'm gonna be upset. You have the Golden Girls, the horticulture, right in your midst here with Harrier. And that is something that Deadpool really, really likes. So if he could end up getting involved, even if Horticulture has to come and, hey, sorry about all this, we'll take the great knee. So I, you have to get some Golden Girl involvement here. And I, if she doesn't do that, I'm out. I'm telling you right now, if she doesn't have that reference at some point in this arc, I am dropping this book and never looking back. That is my solemn promise to everybody. But back to Altier. You end up, if you want to be a sexy assassin and get part of the cool clothes, also some pretty cool benefits, you have to prove your worth. So this is why Deadpool is tasked with going and taking down Doc Ock. Now, Doc Ock, pretty big character in my mind and kind of silly that you think he's going to end up taking him down. I want to know what the other schmucks ended up doing. Like, what is somebody there like, oh, yeah, I took down Dr. Doom. No, you didn't. Oh, no, no, I took down... You know, Captain America, uh-uh, he didn't. So who in the scope of things did they take down 
that they end up being able to say you're only allowed in if you take down Doc Ock. I want to know answers and I want to know them now. But to take down Doc Ock, which is a pretty big task, you end up having the Altier and the Horned Emperor give a handler, give an assistant to Deadpool. And Deadpool is pretty much smitten with Valentine Viong. Who is going to be the assistant ends up introducing themselves and they end up putting some subdermal trackers, you know, spy assassin stuff. But you end up having Deadpool pretty much tripping over his own words. Man, I really like your needles. Kind of gets now almost got a laugh there, but he ends up at one point where you have one of those X-Men pages that's going to explain the Atelier. I guess I said Altier. I kind of like that better. Atelier <laughs> Oh my goodness uh, And he's written in some things Oh man, better pick up lines than nice needles It's okay It didn't make me laugh though I saw a lot of people thought this was hilarious But hey, eh, to each their own You do get one of those crazy walls That I talked about I think last week On this Marvel podcast Where if you end up having a wall With a bunch of pictures, tacks, and yarn You look crazy, but He's kind of crazy, Deadpool It works for him doesn't work for just a random guy like me. So you end up having that. And it's kind of a funny play where he's trying to figure out how he can break into Doc Ock's lab, take down Doc Ock, but also win the heart of Valentine. And okay, it's 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 nice enough, you know. But when he went over to do this and get the plan in motion, that's where we see that Harrower took him down and there's a smart little player because he has obviously his swords and when he gets taken down and taken away by power the swords get left behind he's gonna need them in a minute and i say it's a smart play because if deadpool had the swords while he is imprisoned by Howard, he's gonna get out lickety split he still gets out pretty easy but at least it takes him a little time and there's a fight then gets to the roof of Doc Ock's lab, being chased by Harrower and all her sus nonsense monstrosities, picks up the katanas and slices and dices so that he can then break into the lab and then go and try to take down Doc Ock. But he does get away from Harrower. It's an okay fight. You end up having one of the panels that I really like where he ends up running full speed while Harrower and all these things are after him. Very Deadpool-esque. I like the art in this whole issue. But he ends up getting to the lab, as I said, getting the katanas and slicing and dicing. And then he crashes. And Doc Ock's like, what the heck is going on? Now, while this is happening, the the painkillers, the anesthetics that you ended up having Howard give Deadpool so that she could insert the carnage symbiote, they're wearing off. And he starts to feel the old baby kicking, also maybe eating his liver. And also, he's kind of having some pain and troubles. And when he falls into more than breaks into Doc Ock's lab, he lands and then has to say to Doc Ock, yeah, wait a second here, Doc. I'm going to get up and kill you in just a second. But as that ends up happening, all of a sudden, you get a very alien scene where a carnage hand just comes ripping through Deadpool's chest. Now, what in the heck? Do you think Doc Ock thinks is going on here? I mean, things are wacky. First off, when Deadpool shows up anytime, you're like, man, that's wacky. But then all of a sudden, he's having problems. He might be throwing up. He has an arm coming out of his chest. And then we do end it with 
what ends up being two carnage arms coming out of Deadpool, looking very much like an iron spider suit kind of thing. But also their Howard is like, oh, man, Doc Ock says, what is this? And Howard says, oh, that's pretty much a victory. That's pretty much success where you end up. She says, carnage is coming. And you end up Deadpool's like, what the heck is happening to me? So by the end, it's okay. It's not horrible. It's okay. I've said this a couple of times. It's kind of a mid-type deal, but it's not bad enough that you wouldn't continue. And it's, but it's not good enough for me to say that, oh my God, you have to read this. This is the greatest thing ever. So with that, I'm going to give it a 6.9, 69, dude. I'm going to go 6.9 out of 10. And, and, you know, call it a day of, okay, it's better than I thought it was going to be. So I give kudos to Alyssa Wong. Secret Invasion number one. And Secret Invasion number one is written by Ryan North. Pencils and inks by Francisco Mobley. Colors by Jordi Belair. Letters by Joe Caramagna. And it's kind of a tough deal. You know, Ryan North has to tell a story that usually really lies heavily on or relies heavily on tension, fear, hysteria. And to do that in a five-issue mini that is just called Secret Invasion, scroll on the cover. Okay, how are we going to do this? He ends up, he has to put the pedal to the metal here. You got to get things going. And by the end of the issue, he does set up that paranoia that will you know carry this forward by the end though i don't know if i'm gonna go on with it myself i probably will read the next issue it's well done it just doesn't interest me that much it's kind of a boring issue even though i thought it was a clever way that ryan north does go about because what you end up having is kind of a two-part story you have a flashback of nick fury going to iowa to investigate a scroll appearance And this is freelance Nick Fury. There is no shield anymore. So he's just there. You know, the scroll stuff, it's very personal. So he's going to show up in Iowa to check it out. In the meantime, in the present, he has gone to talk to Maria Hill, his old shield buddy, to talk about what had happened. And if this is indeed the beginning of a scroll invasion. And you end up having a story in the flashback in Iowa where Nick goes and a family, a, a mom and her two kids, they had called because her husband had died and they think the husband was a scroll. And they end up, it's a really crazy beginning because you end up, oh, come on in. I want to show you. It's a great day. My husband died. And look, isn't it great? He's a scroll. And now we can find a real husband slash father. Now, The problem is the semantics of this aren't really working because scrolls revert back to scrolls when they die. This guy hasn't. And the guy's probably dead anyway. If a scroll takes you over, they usually kill you. So there's a lot of problems with that. And what ends up happening is as you go through this and Nick Fury in the present does go to talk to Maria Hill about what happened and you see him go through all you know the steps to get into the cia deal he gets an eye scan he's yelling at this new front desk guard very nick fury-esque very samuel l jackson-esque as he then goes in to talk to maria to tell what happened back in iowa so you get this play and you kind of feel sad and bad for this family because they end up saying well we know that he was a scroll because 
he really wasn't acting right. Me and him were getting in arguments. And also, he wasn't really paying attention to the kids, stuff like that. So he had to be a scroll, right? He couldn't just be a piece of crap. I was waiting for the next step as he went down in the basement and recorded a million podcasts. All I could hear is Black Pink playing from down there. I'm like, oh, my God, my ears are burning. And I know what would happen with me. If you ended up getting a scroll impersonate me, they don't have our memories. Remember, I think the scroll would end up really pissing me off. Now, I guess from beyond the grave, but still pissing me off because he'd probably be a better father than me. My kids would probably love scroll dad. And then somehow I wouldn't be dead. All of a sudden I come back and now I'm in court. They're deciding to go with scroll dad. I'm just left out there. Now, with that, hopefully they allow me to live with them with scroll dad. And then we could have a sitcom, you know, almost my two dads, but one's a scroll, a little odd couple deal. But I think that all in all, I think I'd be a very bad influence on scroll dad. Scroll dad would end up turning into me and I wouldn't mind because scroll dad, he could do half of the podcasts I do, lighten the load on me. And I could listen to more black pink. That's that's what will happen by the end. But you kind of feel sad because you see like, oh, this is just stages of grief. They've heard about the scrolls. And even Nick says to Maria, they didn't quite get all the info of what happens when a scroll dies and when they take over. And so Maria, while she's talking to Nick, oh, so what did you do? Did you let them down? Did you end up saying in front of the kids not awful stuff? Oh, no, no. I told him I'd look into it. And then, oh, you old softy. And they're talking. And at this point, everything's kosher. Everything's good. But then the story starts to change, and this is where you get that twist that I thought was pretty cool, where while Nick is telling the story to Maria, we're seeing the flashback is going wrong. And he's saying to Maria, oh, it was great. They ended up, you know, wanting me to stay for lunch. You know, I'm the hero Nick Fury. Hey, and they made me peanut butter and jelly. I even had a glass of milk. And you know what? I told him I'd look into it, and I think everything will be a-okay. But in the flashbacks, that's not what happened. Nick ended up, when he sat down to eat what was probably going to be peanut butter and jelly, he looks at a picture and sees that these kids and the mother are wearing the exact same clothes as the one family picture that they have with the dad who's alive at that point. So he knows right now they're scrolls. This is actually a trap. And he freaks out. Scrolls are pretty tough. The kids' scrolls just go at him. It's like children of the corn. They end up attacking him. He tries to get away. Unfortunately, he can't. So this is at the point where you realize, oh, yeah, the Nick Fury talking to Maria Hill, that's the scroll. The the invasion is completely on. So you see that, and you even have this Danny, the slash scroll mother. They end up reverting to their scroll form and says, usually we kill the people, but we're going to keep you alive. You're pretty important. That's kind of a convenience type thing. You're not going to kill Nick Fury. But in that, you are like, oh, my God, Maria Hill, they're done. The invasion's on. She's talking to Nick and ends up at a point. Maybe it's when she asked, "Okay, are you okay? Tell me, how are you really feeling? There's some code being said here. That's an old shield thing between those two. They're shield buddies. And this is something where. Maria says we had to set up me and Nick because if we thought one or the other was compromised, we'd have this little code word. Now, 
Nick going off to investigate some scroll stuff, you're going to want to do this when he comes back. And if it is Nick, he's going to laugh. Yeah, man, yeah, do the code phrase, the back and forth phrasing, and then laugh about it. Man, you know, Marie, I thought you forgot about that. Or, oh, you never trust anybody. So the problem is, though, the Nick Fury here doesn't respond in the way that Maria knows that he should. And she ends up pressing the old classic red button. And yeah, the SWAT team comes in and takes Nick and Marie even grabs a gun out of her desk, points it right at Nick's face and says, what did you do? Where's Nick? This is ridiculous. And in my mind, Maria must think that the real Nick Fury right now is dead. So she's pissed. They get the scroll. Nick Fury take him away and put them in a prison and then start to interrogate him. But the scroll is kind of just at first, oh, no, it's me. It is Nick. Oh, my God, you're going with that shield stuff? Shield's dead. And Maria says, Nick never forgets a secret. There's no way. And it's funny kind of going with the secret invasion type play there, too. But the big thing here is that there's a bunch of Nicks at all of these places around everywhere. You know, the FBI building, the NSA headquarters, the Department of Homeland Security, everywhere that there's somewhere a scroll would want to infiltrate. They're now Nick Fury. They're all being taken down simultaneously as Maria gets the word out. So she says to the scroll, okay, your secret evasion's over. Stop it. Tell your stupid emperor that it didn't work. It didn't work the last time. It's not going to work now. We're smarter now. We have things set up. And the scroll starts laughing. Oh, you really think that Nick Fury's the only one we impersonated? Oh, that's so cute. So cute of you, Maria Hill. And almost alludes to the idea that the Avengers might be compromised. So Maria's going to have to get a hold of them. I don't think that she has her little special phrases with them. So she's just got to rely on them figuring it out amongst themselves. And when she calls, there's a version of the danger room that Tony set up. Kind of quippy deal. Actually, this page for a couple of the panels is one of the better Avengers scenes that we've gotten in quite some time. That is shade to the Jason Aaron Avengers book, but it's decent enough. But yeah, they end up, all right, well, scrolls, we're going to have to figure this out. But none of us could possibly be, you know, compromised, right? Right, New Phoenix? Right, Echo? Right, Captain Marvel, who always ends up being mind-controlled or duplicated? Uh, my money is actually on Captain Marvel, Carol, for being the one that is ending up a scroll. But that would be too much on the money of everything that we keep doing with her. And they always end up, she's duplicated so that you can push the idea that she could take down all the team. I go with the idea that really by this point, how many times it's happened, she might be the weakest willed of them all. You know, you can kind of go glass half full, half empty here. And the idea that she keeps in her own book and the Avengers book, she keeps getting duplicated. She keeps getting mind controlled. So we'll see how it is. But is it T'Challa? Maybe that would explain why John Ridley's Black Panther book really sucks. It's been him all along. Or Black Widows there. You have Captain America, Steve Rogers, and also Iron Man, Tony Stark. I'm going to go with Tony Stark. I don't know. Maybe we can make some bets on it. Because what happens here is that oh, none of us are compromised. We're the Avengers for crying out loud. Hey, everybody, let's take a breather. They all go and walk off and how Ryan North plays this whole deal at the end with the cliffhanger is one of them. We don't know which then is revealed. Oh, no, scroll. 
So there we go. We'll have to figure it out. But that's the paranoia, the hysteria, and the fear and tension that you want to get from these secret invasions. So I'm talking about it. And as I'm talking about it, I'm liking it a little bit more. But by the end, I just, do we need a secret invasion? Is it something that I want to get involved with? Even if it's only five issues, I said, I'm going to read the next issue. And if it ends up being decent enough, I'll just keep continuing until either. I I don't think this is ever going to be bad enough to upset me. I just think I'll get bored with it. So we'll see if I can get through five issues. But overall, it's okay. It's actually a decent start. Like I said, it's not really my thing. So maybe that's the problem. But it's easy to read. And I think that where Ryan North does end up doing a good job at points is because he's more of an all ages writer. It's not that he dumbs things down, but he has to present it clearly. And he does here. It actually is a pretty cool story with a little twist at mid level in the middle of the comic. And then you get a twist for the cliffhanger at the end. So overall, I think I'm going to give it a solid 7.5 out of 10. And now we will go on to the next book. And now that we got done with the flashback books from a week ago, we'll go into the newer books. I'm going to start with Amazing Spider-Man. And it's one of those things that I'm kind of enjoying, but not loving. I want to love it. I want to love Spider-Man. But Seb Wells coming out of the Beyond stuff, He just isn't giving enough answers to questions that he's posing. And the questions he's posing kind of seem to be kind of sus questions anyway. Almost triggers the people with Mary Jane having this new family. Everybody pissed off at Peter. Aunt May almost bankrupt because of what Peter did six months ago that we don't really know what that is. So you're sitting here waiting for answers. But in the meantime, I'm trying to enjoy the individual issues and arcs and this hobgoblin arc is okay there's just something missing in this book and we'll talk about it as we go through here but it just doesn't seem to have the heart and soul that i usually have seen in a spider-man book though i'm not a lifelong spider-man reader so maybe i'm just wrong but it is written by Zeb Wells, and I'll say it's Amazing Spider-Man number 13, written by Zeb Wells, pencils by John Romita Jr., inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Marcelo Menez, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Here's a little bit of the recap. Uh, Spider-Man is going head-to-head with not one but two hobgoblins. Peter's friend Ned Leeds and the first and original Roderick Kingsley. Roderick is again messing with Ned's head. And has led to nothing but pain for Ned, his wife Betty, and their new baby Winston. Can Spider-Man help them? Heck, can Spider-Man even survive this? Probably not. I disagree with that recap. I think Spider-Man will be okay by the end of this. But we end up having a reveal at the end that we see who's pulling the strings and why. I'm not going to fully spoil that. I think it's a little too soon to be spoiling things that big. But if you are reading and paying attention to what is coming up in the spider books you might have already guessed who that might be but in that recap the talk of oh my god ned betty and new baby winston nothing but pain in their lives for this have we really seen that have we really gotten a lot of personal connection in this book i think the best personal connection and character scene that we've had was when peter did ask Felicia Hardy out, Black Cat out on a date. I thought that that was pretty good. But overall, 
You have Zeb Wells, who kind of seems to be cramming scenes together without a lot of connective tissue and uh, without a lot of character moments to drive the story. And I think that it comes to roost big time in this issue because, again, it says that Ned, Betty, and new baby Winston have been in pain. They haven't really seen any of them. You ended up last issue where Peter went to Betty. Hey, is Ned here? Oh, no, he's down the docks in his office that he's trying to keep from me. Okay, thanks, Betty, and leaves. And, yeah, Betty's crying on the panel like she does in this issue as well by the end. But you're not getting that personal touch that you usually get. And even when Peter goes to talk to Ned and even confront him because you end up where he's yelling stuff about, you know, the hobgoblin, all that, and then reveals that in that office, there is the Winkler machine, and that is not the machine that turns you into the Fonz. It'd be cool if it was. I'm telling you, it'd be real cool if it was. But he says, oh, don't you get it? I'm being controlled by Roderick once again with the Winkler machine. So all this leads to Peter fighting the two hobgoblins, as it said. But you also have Norman, who in a sus way is not supposed to be able to really track Peter at all time and go in video us, but he has. He had his computer, not that he wanted his computer, but his assistant came and gave him his computer so he could do some stuff, probably bored there, maybe do a little work. But he ends up right away going and looking in on Spider-Man, and Spider-Man is in big trouble, and it's a good thing that you had Norman do this. But I was afraid that it was going to be another one of those plays Norman is trying to be a good guy, but he keeps doing things that are going to make him look bad. Whether or not he's being bad, they aren't good looks. And last issue, you did have Peter say to Norman, no more lies. And we talked about this on the last podcast. If you end up needing to trust somebody, it doesn't matter if it's a little, big, medium-sized lie. You can't lie at all. If you are there to gain trust in an area where there's a real slim possibility of getting trust i mean this is norman osborne trying to get peter to trust him that he has gotten past the goblin stuff now as a reader you want that to happen i think some people may not i do because i do like norman and i think that he's really trying and he actually has more heart in this book than anybody so i don't want that to go away but I realize that Zeb Wells is using this as a device as well, but he ends up seeing this fight, a fight gone wrong. Spider-Man's getting the crap kicked out of him. He's fighting two hobgoblins. That is a tall order. So he yells for the nurse and says, hey, nurse, we need somebody to go. Cops need to get there. Send the police to this address. Spider-Man's a big trouble. The nurse is like, okay, we did that. Now you just rest because there's nothing you can do. But as she is saying that, he's looking at this golden prototype on his computer. And he's like, yeah, there is nothing I can do. You're starting to do things that you don't want to do this, Norman, please. So we go then to the big fight. And a lot of this issue is fighty, fighty, punchy, punchy. And again, usually you're going to get more quips and things like that. This is deadly serious. Spider-Man's in big trouble. He's trying to take down, you know, Roderick mainly. I don't think he wants to take down Ned, but he's got to stop him. And so you don't really get that, you know, fun-loving Spider-Man fight here. But it ends up, the tension ramps up, and it does look like Peter is in real, real big trouble as this goes on. And luckily, though, 
before you end up having Roderick pretty much order and control Ned to kill Peter, you end up having Norman show up. He shows up as the golden glider, golden, you know, goblin here and smashes in and saves Peter at that point. Now you end up having Roderick and Ned. They want to get away. Roderick especially. So they get on their glider. They go off. And as hobgoblins are wont to do, you end up having Roderick be a real piece of crap, turns on Ned and throws him off the glider to be a distraction. Peter saves him. But once he saves him and gets him on the rooftop, Ned just starts choking out Peter. And this is a Peter that earlier you even had Ned with the electrical gauntlets end up shocking Peter, which ended up removing his mask. So as Ned is there choking out Peter, looking right in his eyes. Now, Ned's still a hobgoblin here, but he is choking out Peter more than he really is choking out Spider-Man. So that's a big play there. But as that goes on, Norman doubles back and punches the crap out of Ned, knocks him out. So he saves Peter again. But he keeps punching and punching. Ned is knocked out. He is unconscious. Peter has to stop Norman. Norman has blood all over that sexy new gold beetle suit, right? Oh, my goodness gracious. And he does thank Peter. Thank you. I, I went a little too far. So it's showing you that. And and this is the thing. Norman knows that there is that possibility. He doesn't want to get in these situations because of that, because of what he could turn back into. He's aware of this. It's pretty much a good analogy to being a drug addict or somebody who has any sort of addiction. If you get back into that swing of things, you may not be able to help yourself. And now he has done that. That is the strings. Those are the strings that are being pulled in the background, as we see by the end of this issue. But things end up wrapping up. Norman has a lot of money. He has a lot of lawyers. So he's not going to get in any sort of trouble. And he's able to pretty much skedaddle Peter out of there without his identity being revealed. That is maintained. And then he goes and talks to his assistant because the lawyers, the assistants, they all show up here at the scene. The lawyers are talking to the cops while Norman's talking to his assistant and says, hey, thank you. I mean, we have to thank you for saving Spider-Man. If you wouldn't have brought my computer to the hospital, he would have been dead. And she says, what? I didn't bring your computer to the hospital. Why would I do that? I want you to rest. You're supposed to be resting. He's like, oh, no. Oh, Drax, who could it be? So, yeah, that's a big play. Those are the strings. But before we get to see exactly what that is, you have Peter go to talk to Betty. And again, these scenes either are too quick. It has weird interactions. Whatever it is. I'm not getting the feels from them. When Peter comes and says, hey, I want to see how Ned's doing. Is he okay? I also want to say Norman has hired lawyers for him. It'll be fine. The whole deal will be, everybody will be aware that he was being controlled by Roderick because of the Winkler device. Didn't turn into the fonts. I just want to remind everybody of that. But you end up where Betty I don't know. I mean, she is a reporter. She's heard things, and, and it is dealing with Ned. Unfortunately, the Winkler device wasn't at his office. It wasn't there. So when they go to see that as that evidence-type deal, okay, if you say that Roderick Kingsley was the one in command of you, 
and use the classic Winkler device to make you the hobgoblin. All right, let's. It's not there. So it looks like he's lying. I don't even know that Kingsley won't even turn it around and say that, in fact, Ned was the one who was leading him all along. But it doesn't seem like Roderick's in that much problem or, or trouble because we end the issue where he goes off and he goes back to his lab location unknown. He has his cronies there. He's like, hey, and there's the Winkler device. He ended up having them get it and bring it to his location. So, okay, Kingsley, you son of a gun. You sus bastard. You ended up setting up Ned so bad, and now it makes it seem like Ned was just hobgoblin on his own. No Winkler device. Now you have it. And he's like, okay. And he starts revving it up to sit in it, and you get a talk. You get a word bubble from off panel. Oh, who might this be? That basically says that all this was was about Norman and pulling the strings because his sins have come back to haunt him as you end up seeing Roderick in the Winkler device itself and this character activating it and using it. So all in all, for me getting mad at Roderick, it's not even Roderick. Roderick is also being controlled, but this is all about Norman and all about this mysterious character that you will know, especially if you have been reading Spider-Man and the Beyond stuff, stuff that Zeb Wells was also involved with. And if you know what's coming up, it all makes sense of how this is playing. The issue itself is good. It's not great. It's good. And where it fails again, I said at the beginning, where's the heart and soul of this book? Because you usually will have certain things. And I'm not saying you always have to have Mary Jane, right? But having Mary Jane have another family and not wanting to talk to Peter, that kind of throws you off. Then I don't have to have Aunt May in every issue, but Aunt May's pissed off at Peter. They're not really getting along and they're kind of cold to each other. And Aunt May almost went bankrupt because of these bills that she ended up having to pay for Peter. So it's not just the idea that these characters aren't in the book. It's the reasons why they aren't. And then when they're in it, it feels off. It all feels off. And I don't think that Zeb Wells is giving us a lot of character moments. I think that he's going from scene to scene. And it's just not jiving with me overall that I'm caring. I'm not sitting there worrying about baby Winston. While they end up where we hear that Ned's in big trouble and the Winkler machine wasn't. But that's what I should be worried about. That is a father that has a newborn that might go to jail for a long time. But I don't even think of that until afterwards. And Oh, yeah. Betty is just somebody who's answered the door twice and cried a couple of times. But I never feel like there's any warmth. And Peter feels like right now that he's not even having fun being Peter or Spider-Man. When this run started, me and Jason were talking about it. It felt like Peter as Peter Parker, down a little, oh man, that thing that happened six months is a real pain in the butt and everybody hates me. But when I put on the Spider-Man costume, I'm having some fun. This is where I can forget about those troubles and just be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And it just, it doesn't feel like that as much anymore. And because of that, my enthusiasm is down. Like I said, technically, I think that the issue was pretty good. I like John Romita's art for the most part. I think that it was a little down at points in this as compared to some of the other issues. But I think it was just the fight scenes and how it was going back and forth. There really wasn't a ton for him to do that would really impress you. And I think that maybe his fight choreography was a little off. But overall, though, it's it's just missing that thing. 
that je ne sais quoi, if you will. But that is that. And I'm going to give it a 6.5 out of 10. I could go, I could go up to a seven, but I couldn't go. I'm just going to stay six, five, six, five out of 10. I'd like to hear what people think about this run in general and this issue in particular, but we'll see how it goes. I hope that it, and it can get better. I just need something to grab onto that kind of pulls at the heartstrings and gets me kind of involved emotionally, not just reading it and, you know, Hey, that's cool and move on. I, I want to love it. I want to like it so much. That I can't wait for the next issue It hasn't happened yet, but maybe it will And after all that rambling at the end Let's go to the next book Issue number two of Dan Slott's new Spider-Man book It is End of Spider-Verse And I think a lot of people I've heard from They want the Spider-Verse, at least in the comics, to end We'll see if that happens by the end of this story But I like this issue I think it's a pretty good issue The art's incredible And while some people thought that it was full of exposition and explanation, I actually didn't mind it. But it is Spider-Man number two, written by Dan Slott, pencils by Mark Bagley, inks by John Dell, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. The issue itself is called End of the Spider-Verse Part 2, The Last Spider-Man Standing. And yeah, desperate times here. Already they've allowed Morloon to be part of this team. Crazy stuff, right? Well, that'll be explained a little in this issue. And the idea of this being full of exposition, yes, it is. But I don't mind it because some of the stuff is really interesting. You have some twists and turns going on. So I'm down for it. But here we go into an issue that looks downright incredible throughout. Mark Bagley, mwah! He should be commended over and over and over. We actually start with what really sounds like a Tom Holland Spider-Man. And it is because we start off on Earth TRN971. And while that should be the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's actually the Marvel theme park universe. And there's a neat little reason why. If you end up having the cinematic universe, then the comics have to keep up with what's going on in the shows and the movies and whatnot. And you're going to have things like the Thanos snap at this moment. Well, you're not going to be able to use a lot of characters. And in this beginning, you have Tony Stark talking to Spider-Man. And so this whole theme park universe Earth is just a Marvel Cinematic Universe without the snap or the blip. So you end up being able to use classic characters from the MCU. I think it's a neat little thing. And you end up having Mr. Stark getting a hold of Peter Parker and saying, hey, Peter, what's going on? There's problems over at the old Web HQ. The Tom Allen Spider-Man, man, thanks for letting me be in Web. This is great, but I am a spider character. So I guess you had to let me in. And that's where you end up having Tony say, well, you are the only Spider character in this universe, right? And Spider-Man says, yeah, I think. The weird play, though, is somebody or something or some buddies are wrecking house over at the Web HQ, and no alarms are getting alerted. In fact, when Spider-Man gets there, his Spidey sense isn't even tingling. It's because there are Spider characters there. Now, if you're reading this, you'll realize right away, even before you get that page turn, that they will be spider wasps of Shathra. It's just who 
and who is Spider-Ham, Spider-Man 2099, and Spider-Man India and a really overpowered group to take down Tom Holland. I love Tom Holland, but he's not surviving this, or at least he's not going to get changed. And I'm sure they don't show it, but I'm sure he is now a spider wasp. So from there, we go back to the 616 proper, where we ended last issue in a confrontation of Peter Parker, Miles Morales, Silk, and Morloon going head-to-head with the spider wasps, Spider-Man Noir, Spider-Punk, Mayday, Parker, Spider-Girl, slash Spider-Woman, and Ghost Spider, Gwendolyn Stacy. And so you have them confronting, and you're going to have our good guy and gal team not really wanting to hurt these characters. More loon, he doesn't care. This guy's going to go over the top, and he wants to kill everyone there. He's actually stopped at one point by Silk from killing uh, what is, I believe, Mayday. So that's that's a good deal where Silk stops this going on. But you have that, well, we, we want to find a cure. These are our friends. Morloon says, this, this is war. There's no friends in war. This is a desperate situation, and they don't realize how desperate it is. Now, Peter is going up against Spider-Man Noir, who has the spider totem dagger, and Peter wants to get this dagger. I mean, this is something bad. We saw Jessica Drew being unloomed by it last issue. And even in this issue, you have a point where the characters are starting to forget who Jessica Drew is. Even in this, when you have Peter say to Spider-Man Noir, hey, you killed Jessica Drew with that. Who's Jessica Drew? Like, she is being forgotten. And that's what that dagger ends up doing. He's trying to get it, but they're not going to have the time. At this moment, things are so desperate. You end up having Aranya, Spider-Girl, and Spider-UK come through a portal and grab our heroes and take them away, they say. And you get Aranya using the magic. You have a funny little quip where you have Peter say to Aranya, hey, does Doctor Strange know that you stole his bit? And Aranya comes back with, wait a minute, no, he stole our bit. Didn't you ever think about how he uses those Spider-Man looking techniques with his fingers and stuff and yet peter mind blown and they go through this portal we don't know just yet where they're going but we find out from the reaction of shathra that they are somewhere that can't be tracked and aranya and spider uk end up saying that poor 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 nestling who's a spider wasp but they're trying desperately to find them while shathra is pretty much leering over her shoulder screaming and yelling at her but she says they have gone off the web they are actually gone dark shathra is pissed we find out where they went and it's pretty cool earth 616 beta universe this is a old timey comic book looking with the ben day dots not the uncle ben day dots that's a dad joke right there but you end up it looks like an old comic book and it's explained that this was the test run of the 616 so some of the places aren't quite done yet they may not be named and they are outside of one of them the our lady of saints church and that is a big deal while in this beta universe it hasn't been named yet once it gets named it becomes real big in the whole spider history this is the church where eddie brock bonded with the venom symbiote and spider-man number 300 but it's also where the citizens that were mutated in the Spider Island story went to get cured. 
Morloon laughs because he's like, yeah, this place, <laughs> I, I really ate a lot of people here and wrecked it at points. Oh, my God, it's so great. And, yeah, it's always too soon for that, Morloon. Shut your mouth. Everybody's upset that Morloon's on this team. But before they end up going into the church, you have this little aside with Peter and Morloon where Peter's like, yeah, Morloon, you shut your mouth. And Morloon's like, you're really a mystery there, old Peter Parker. Because I, you know, pretty much consumed your life force, but here you are, huh? That's odd. But they end up going into the church, and this is where you get introduced, or at least if you haven't read the Spider-Verse prelude stuff, you'll be introduced to these characters. Our team has introduced them as well, because when you go in, you get the Hunter, Spider, the Craven deal, Spintress, the Disney Spider, Princess Web Weaver, the fashion designer, Sun Spider, who is the handicapped Spider-Man or Spider-Gal, and Night Spider, the Felicia Hardy deal, the Black Cat Spider-Man. So you end up this introduction. It's nice. Craven just likes to hunt, so he doesn't care who's on the team. He's fired up. We have both the chosen one, Peter Parker, and Morlun. Oh, my God, what a hunting party this will be. And he's just like, he seems to be the guy who's like really confident that no matter what, He's going to be able to solve it all by just hunting down everyone. But you end up having a neat little deal where Spintress, the Disney princess Spider-Man, she starts singing introductions about everybody. Peter eventually stops her, which is kind of funny. Peter goes over to Felicia Hardy, Night Spider, and wants to get, you know, the vibe. Okay, are you good, bad, what? Hey, nice to meet you. You know, I just want to know, like, in your world, it is with great power comes, and she interrupts him. No accountability, and ends up stealing his belt. It's a neat little, cute little moment that made me actually laugh. So I'll, I'll give Dan Slack credit here. Now, when he had Spintress singing, not as good as her introduction and her songs and things in those Spider-Verse deal, but he does an okay job with that. One little misplay, as Madam Webb comes down to talk to them, you end up having Silk is really disturbed that Peter has been going around with a torn up costume and no mask. I actually was going to say that at the beginning of this. He's just going through downtown Manhattan without a mask. Very odd. But she ends up using her silky, silky powers to fix his costume. And I thought, why are you doing that? Web Weaver is there. He's a fashion designer. This is his thing. Why didn't you do that? Now, there is a page term where he then says, hey, that's my thing. Why didn't you let me do that? And Peter says, oh, we'll do that later. But I thought that that would have been a cool play, at least for this book and this kind of end of spite. Have Peter in a different costume that you had made by Web Weaver. I thought that would have been a neat deal. But Dan Slott doesn't want to go that route. But Madam Web. When she comes down, she's going to explain kind of what's going on and how desperate the situation is. This is all they have left. This group is it. Peter at one point thinks the plan should be, hey, let's go gather up some more Spider-Men and gals and whatever. There are no more left. You end up having them say, you don't get it. This is it. You're the chosen one. This is our team. And we're going against the rest of the Spider-Verse. And it really looks bad. But she also talks and gives a little explanation to the team and to us about the spider totem dagger that ended up killing Jessica Drew. The reason why Shathra is using this is because the spiders of Earth-616 
can't be changed into wasps. It's kind of explained in a non-explanation way. We don't know why, but it's just something that happens. The 616 Spider-Man, Spider-Gals, all of them, they can't be turned into wasps. So the Spider-Totem Dagger is just being used to just completely eliminate them from the web, like Jessica Drill. So that's a big play here. But it also shows you with this team, a lot of them are still vulnerable because they aren't from the 616. Well, the other thing in the elephant in the room is what the heck's going on with Morloon? Why is Morloon on the team? And they ask him, how'd you get here? And he says, in a comic booky way. Well, there's no time for that. But if you insist, you know he wants to tell this story. He's a storyteller at heart. He talks about the idea of heading off to Loom World. I think this might be Spider Boy's little jumping gauntlet, Spider-Verse jumping deal. He ends up finding one of those portal gauntlets. He says finding. It's on the severed arm of, like I said, I think it might be Spider Boy. But he gets that and goes to Loom World. He's going to Loom World because he wants to find the rest of his inheritor team, his family. And the funny play here, though, is, is they were actually, during the Spider-Geddon event, they were turned into babies, and they're there in a nursery. I think that what he actually means is he has to go and feed Burp and change their diapers. And you know that this nursery has to stink. I have five kids. Diapers are the worst. They stink, and these things have probably been sitting around for a while. The babies are probably crying. Well, there's no crying. There was at one point, I'm sure, but when he busts into this whole nursery, we find out, oh, it's not a problem because Spider-Man, the Aunt May what-if Spider-Man, she's been taking care of them. Oh, no, she took care of them. She ate them. They're dead. They're done. And so he gets pissed off. He attacks Spider-Man and then starts heading to the throne room of Loom World to face and, in his mind, hopefully, take down Shathra. So he goes against Shathra at this point. He kind of is losing, and she's talking a lot of crap and ends up revealing that more loon is more spider than anything. And it it really makes some sense. Solus, the father of the inheritors, he had to eat a bunch of spiders so that the web would recognize him as a spider. Well, after all these years, after all the inheritors continuously end up consuming spiders, all that going down the line, they pretty much become more spiders than anything else. So he's part of the spider family, and that's why he's on the team, because as he's about to get just decimated, he realizes he goes to retreat, he hits his gauntlet, he portals out, but Madam Webb was able to intercept that and bring, you know, more loon into the fold here. and so. That's where we end up with Morloon on the team. So that's pretty cool. Now, by the end, you end up where you're thinking, okay, we haven't really gotten much, but I actually like all the explanations and some of the twists. But the big twist here is, if you remember Miles, he got bit in the first issue. Uh, but that shouldn't be a problem, right? Because 616 spiders, they can't turn. Oh, no. Miles is from the Ultimate Universe. He's from the uh, 1610 there's trouble. He starts turning into a wasp. And that is something that Shathra is now able to see through his eyes and knows exactly where they are. And in a cool looking final panel, 
She's got everybody. I mean, from the video game Spider-Man to Arachnite to the Hulk Spider-Man from Mark Wade's What If Story of 2005, there are just a who's who of Spider-Man now as Spider-Wasp. Pretty cool page. I wish it was a full spread, but you have it as a cliffhanger here. Now, all in all, with that, if the video game Spider-Man doesn't get turned back from being a Spider-Wasp, eh, you know, video game Spider-Man. Miles is now a Spider-Wasp. Spider-Ham, even. all the Spider-2099. They're going to have to find a way to cure them. They're not going to let this just lie like that, obviously. But you could still play along and have fun with this issue. And I did have fun with it. I thought it was really cool. The art's incredible. I mean, the art is impeccable, even. I like it that much. And I like the explanation. I like seeing some of these characters that we ended up getting in the Spider-Verse prelude thing going on into this. So overall, I'm going to go a solid 8.5. And I know that some people will probably say, oh, that's way too high. Oh, my God, what are you thinking? I just had fun with this. And it feels big. It feels like an event. So I am down with it. And, yeah, I'd like to know what everybody else thinks of it. But. That is that for Spider-Man number two. And that is it for the show this week. But I think I'm going to have a little in-between show because we do still have a bunch of books, including a big number one, The Fantastic Four by Ryan North. So I want to get that done before next Sunday. So look for another show to pop up on this here feed, probably around Wednesday or Thursday. But again, thanks everybody for listening. Please go over to the Twitter at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you back. Go to our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com. Get reviews for a lot of the issues that come out each and every week from Marvel. Then go over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash weird science, where you can get a bunch of books, including our weekly Patreon only spotlight picked by the badasses of the Get Fresh crew. And just as a separate little aside, We also have a bunch of videos going up. They're videos from these podcasts. But if you are liking the idea of reviews in video form, you can go over to our YouTube channel as well, which is just Weird Science Comics, where we have reviews for Marvel, DC, manga, a bunch of other things as well. All of these things will be in the show notes of this here podcast episode and most of the others as well so thanks everybody thanks for listening and i will talk to you very very soon go read comics you are all weirdos weird science is the revolution weird science is the revolution weird science is the revolution